Hey gang, we are doing things a little bit differently this week. We are unlocking an episode from our premium Patreon feed for today's main feed episode. So the the one we're unlocking for you today is called A Spoonful of Thorazine. And this is from a couple of weeks ago when we, we set out to start talking about um, this reporting in the New York Times about the use of psychiatric and psychotropic medications in nursing homes. And it sort of became this much bigger, longer conversation about stuff like Depakote Sprinkle and all of the ways that chemical incarceration just sort of exists as this fantastic policy tool, right, for austerity and for keeping profits running in congregate, you know, warehouse facilities. Sorry, sorry, point of order. I thought we were sitting down today to talk about uh, Vinay Prasad's new blog post, Mein Kampf. Yes, <laughs> I have not, I've not seen the, all he needs is like this sort of 1930s German microphone. That'd be good. This is how democracy ends. <laughs> <laughs> not with a whimper. But with things that were said by a Gombin a full year ago. <laughs> uh, oh, man. No, but in all seriousness, yeah, this episode, unfortunately, is uh, still very relevant to the conversation right <laughs> yeah. now, especially because the reconciliation bill hasn't been passed. None of the stuff that we talk about uh, in that is at the especially at the beginning of this conversation about how, you know, the like long term care provisions in the reconciliation bill are, you know, still kind of like unresolved none of that stuff has been resolved and Mm -hmm. then yeah the conversation that we get into later uh in the episode gets into really like why we need stuff that goes above and beyond anything that's being proposed Mm -hmm. right now and it kind of makes the whole you know mansion cinema show that we actually we talked about on this week's patron episode with libby watson like just seem like even more the clown show that it is like that that stuff is like really unimportant what's really important is stuff like the absolute hellscape that is um nursing homes and institutionalized long-term care today that we're going to get into yeah and i feel like we we talk a lot about how you know the coverage of uh this legislation is like never never pays attention to the substantive like meaning of any of the provisions just pays attention to like the dollar figures but i think like the implication of this, like what we talk about in the episode is like, if you want to know what it means to quote unquote, like control spending in <laughs> long-term care, um, and you want to know like what that really looks like and what it really looks like for, uh, the companies that provide these services to run <laughs> on, like su- chemicals on super lean, lean margins. Yeah. It, it looks like a really dystopian hellscape that is not fictional it is very real uh, yeah. uh, and is happening across the country it's yeah it's administrative chemical sedation for administrative purposes and i think it's just you know it's so funny um so many people don't even think that this exists i sat down to do an interview um a couple months ago and when it came out in the beginning of the interview um the guy alex was quoting tucker carlson who was talking about like vax mandates and being like well what people aren't going to force you into uh taking psychotropic medications no one's going to force uh, you know uh antidepressants what? on you like uh. what you know <laughs> There's these attacks right for freedoms now. And it's like, oh, please. Well, stay tuned to find out how it happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think, uh, but yeah, usually we don't, uh, you know, as everyone knows, usually we don't, don't do this this week though. I think, uh, this was, you know, behind the patron paywall. This is a really relevant conversation to exactly the, you know, fight that's happening, uh, this, you know, over the next couple of weeks. And also, uh, just full transparency. Basically one of the other reasons that this is happening is so B records through a lot. Um, (laughs) she, like goes way above and beyond and often will just like push through stuff that just absolutely sucks and right now she's in the middle of like what five six days straight of like infusion stuff so yeah, i have overlapping infusions five days of yeah. iv steroids followed by two days of ivig with one special day where i get both so right six days <laughs> um so we're giving her a damn break Basically, thank you. Um, even, she deserves even a damn be, break. And be rested on the seventh day, as I think <laughs> yes, the good book exactly. says. It's and, like um, I'm fueled by rage until I'm full of steroids, and then <laughs> it just cancels itself out. <laughs> um, but the other thing that's really exciting is we have a very special episode oh, planned yeah. for this coming Tuesday's patron episode. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we have done a lot of really annoying research i guess i would say <laughs> suffering um, for, for that and i think you will all oh yeah enjoy it so immensely. this is this is the moment to press pause go to patreon.com slash death panel pod become a patron so that you'll be ready for that to drop in your feed on tuesday morning and then you can get back to the episode and <laughs> we'll blow your mind with chemical incarceration hellscape and if you're already a patron Thank you so much. And thank yes, you. Indeed. We couldn't and do this without you. And we really appreciate your support, especially me today. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Patreon. Turn tape over. Yes. Roll pause. Press pause and read the uh, the provided guide with you and your in your family. <laughs> Welcome to the death panel. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We appreciate it. And we couldn't do this without you. If you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends. You can post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore on social media. So today we're going to check back in on reconciliation spending in the United States. We talked a little bit about uh, the reconciliation bill and our main feed episode on Thursday in the context of a bigger conversation about the Congressional Budget Office and the way we use uh, our overlords. (laughs) Yeah, the way we use economic analysis to tell us what is politically possible. But um Today, we're going to focus on a little bit of a, you know, a different aspect of it because it it sets up the stakes for, I think, the bigger conversation that we're going to have. And that is um, what's going on with spending on home and community based services, which is if you don't know what HCBS is, it's it's long term care. It's home nursing, home health aides. It's 
care in the home, um, not care in a congregate facility, which is something that the United States pledged to do in 1999 with the Olmstead decision and has never fulfilled. So this has been like a major part of the American infrastructure spending, which has been to try and like get these $400 billion towards home and community-based services, which has been, you know, halved and, and minimized over and over throughout negotiations. And now, you know, it's sort of falling apart even more, the spending yeah. on, on sort of the soft infrastructure care portions. And it's like, this is the, the, the fucking baffling thing to me is like nursing home deaths are, I mean, they've all, since the beginning of the pandemic, it's been this huge issue and it like, and it continues to be, obviously, I think nursing home deaths are up like 500% or something since June. And like, this is, it should be, it should be like a top level issue, but like, yeah, it's like, it's buried. Oh, I, I mean, and the thing that's very obvious, right, is that we are in the middle of a a wave that if you look at the big spread of, of sort of total cases from March 2020 to now, the hump that we're at is just as impressive as that first hump from early 2020. Yeah. And the, the people like the Democrats who are holding this up are saying like, oh, we need to keep this like fiscal headspace so that we can't do this spending now <laughs> like we can't fiscal headspace is that joe mansion of west Jesus, virginia cool, which cool. is having an explosion in covid cases right now like they have like a very high rate of positive tests um and so you know it's like so you have these these democrats that are sort of holding up the spending that in theory like if you were going to inject billions of dollars into paying the home health care workforce like a living wage and making sure that people can get off the wait lists that are like sometimes over a decade long or, or exit nursing homes which is yeah which is talking about yeah a huge right. driver of covid spread and deaths in right. the pandemic like yeah. if you actually could get this money spent right it would be a huge step towards mitigating COVID spread, but God forbid we do anything that could like stop the deaths of the vulnerable right now. Right. There isn't a big fuss in a lot of American political discourse at the moment about the HCBS issue, about keeping it uh, oh, no. al- alive. Even right. as we talked about when, when it was first introduced as part of the, rec- the being maybe part of uh, infrastructure bill two or the reconciliation package or whatever. People laughed. Well, no, no one even responds. It's like specialty press. No, no, we made, we made, no, we covered. No, but remember the, the one, remember the one place where we did see a big response was uh, the weeds did a big episode about it and we made fun of Matt Iglesias calling it basically like reckless unimportant spending but love you Matt um, anyway my point being that even when it came out when it was initially uh, presented we said you know 400 billion dollars is at least the floor for this this mm-hmm. is actually like if you if you look at what it would actually take to really fulfill the promise of Olmstead or more you know do anything to, to end for instance the dominance of extremely carceral nursing homes yeah um like it probably take more than that and it would all be the quote-unquote worthy spending right right right. Right. like you cannot tackle this problem if you have a dollar figure in mind in the beginning right if you go in trying to stay under a number be it like 1.5 billion or 150 billion or 900 billion like it will fail as a policy because we i mean honestly like these congregant settings the way that they suck up money and suck up policy space is this parasitic 
relationship it has this parasitic relationship to like american governance and it's going to take spending to break that right and you cannot you cannot address any of these problems if you have a dollar sign in your mind going into it and i think that the, the funny thing is that i think a lot of the people who are like anybody who knows like anything about how this politics actually works is like you know that you you have to start with how much the things you actually want to do will cost to get done Right. right. You need that kind of thinking about the money. Uh, not. And but the if you read like any of like the, the insider press uh, about uh, like Washington and the way that it works, you will not see a single article that talks in those terms. Like here is what the uh, people who are advocating for HCBS want. And here's how here's like what it would take to get there. That's not how it's discussed at all. In fact, the entire way that like this, the current debate has been covered. You could actually if you read a lot of the coverage, you could forget very easily that there was a pandemic going on at all. Right. Uh, it's literally just framed in terms of like the progressives want more spending, the moderates want less spending. And then it's it's the all of the articles are on uh, dollar figures of spending or uh, different uh, strategies for like paying for it or like taxation or deficit <laughs> financing or whatever. So you, you could like completely ignore the things like this article that you sent uh, us uh, be about uh nursing homes and antipsychotics, you could completely ignore that something like that even happened. Well, um, right. Because I think the thing that we ultimately want to talk about today is that this whole ridiculous debate is going on as, as we've just sort of summarized, as you mentioned, Phil, just now, it's kind of operating as though it's sort of politics as usual, like as though there's no pandemic going on. Just the simple idea being spend X or spend Y or spend nothing, basically. <laughs> right. um, but Really, what is it? What is at issue here beyond just the idea of, you know, what be mentioned of fulfilling what disability rights advocates refer to as like, quote unquote, the promise of Olmstead, right? Beyond just uh, doing that is that I think we don't often enough talk about nursing homes. I mean, we, we do maybe on the show, but like, I think in general, in American society, we don't often enough talk about nursing homes as sort of part of the broader spectrum alongside um, prisons and jails and mm -hmm. things like that as part of like the overall as, as like carceral institutions. Right. Um, so even if you think, even if it's basically like, oh, well, if, even if we wrote off the pandemic in this situation, right, which would be a crazy assumption, but even if we uh, were doing that as so much of the political coverage, as you mentioned, <laughs> does, one thing that I think is really important to point to is, yes, like stuff like this, which is, um, Phil, you're referring to this New York Times report from last week, which basically shows that the use of antipsychotic medication in nursing homes in order to basically like pacify mm -hmm. residents is actually quite Not underreported. Not to pacify, to, to sedate, sedate them. Yeah, I, think, I think we should them. be very yeah, clear yeah, because often it's framed in the language that it is pitched to the nursing home <laughs> yeah. administrators and we'll get into the specifics of this a little bit later but you know pharmaceutical companies will um, try and pitch their medications to this population under this framework that sort of shifts it from being not medically necessary to sort of medically necessary it puts it in this gray area right and so calling it like pacify is sort of like playing into the assumption that essentially it's necessary, right? So right. like, I think, you know, being very clear and like precise when we talk about this and, and say, you know, this is not like pacification, this is 
deliberate sedation done for administrative reasons, right? Um, administrative sedation, we can even call it, you know, because that's ultimately what's going on here. And there's a lot of like pussyfooting around where people are like, well, maybe it's just like, Maybe there's more schizophrenia in old people than there was before. Maybe this is just, you know, maybe there's some other problem going on. This is overprescription or bad doctors. It's like, no, this is a very long and storied practice of administrative sedation that has been going on in the United States that has had multiple, you know, policy proposals, Supreme Court decisions, lawsuits, you fucking name it to try and address it. And always, always, you know, there is the persistence of this continuum of carcerality that dominates the care space for disabled people and for elders. So like the story that you sent me is this this report from The New York Times, which investigated these. I mean, essentially, it began with these deaths at nursing homes that were, I mean, essentially caused by the prescribing of uh, antipsychotic medications purely for the purpose of like either you know, ma- like managing people like, ad- ad- you know, like nursing homes just like need a way of like controlling the population that l- you know, lives inside of them so that they need less care uh, or dis- we're actually like sort of retaliating against, you know, uh, patients that were complaining about things and like the and then you sort of like peel back the layers of the onion here and you see that it's this this huge issue that people are ostensibly being misdiagnosed as having schizophrenia and then antipsychotics are being uh, prescribed as a result. So in like what the Times investigation shows that it's like hundreds of thousands of people every year are being like misdiagnosed as schizophrenic and then being prescribed these antipsychotics, which double the risk of death in uh, dementia patients and have a variety of like other really terrible uh, like health consequences as well. And they are doing it purely for the purpose of like, ad, you know, administering these people like restraining like sedation them. as B yeah. said. Yeah. Right. And, and ultimately the using schizophrenia as this catch all diagnosis, which there is this long history um, that Artie and I write about in our book about um, how schizophrenia used to actually be a very catch all diagnosis just for this purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, historically speaking, and it's, it's coming back into style because <laughs> By by giving them um, the diagnosis, by giving nursing home patients the diagnosis of schizophrenia, it's a way for nursing homes to use, you know, chemical sedation practices, despite the fact that there is a law that's supposed to be prohibiting them prescribing antipsychotics in order to... um, Basically, not for the needs of the patient, but for the needs of the facility. And right, because basically, if you have, uh, because basically, nursing homes, for example, they have these, uh, like you know, just like your uh, shitty health insurance plan <laughs> might have, if you get uh, something through the exchange, they have star ratings, right? right? And so, mm. um, one of the things that can impact a nursing home's star rating is if they have a high incidence of residents being prescribed these uh antipsychotic medications if they do not have if they do not fit certain kind of okayed diagnoses right so one of which is schizophrenia one of which is schizophrenia but so right but this is what i'm saying so essentially for the then this is part of what the times investigation is trying to show that there's a gulf between 
the percentage of um, nursing home residents who are who are kind of like listed for the purposes of these star ratings as you know being on essentially again chemical sedation right for a lot of them um, the number that is essentially reported is lower than what it actually is in practice because in practice it appears that more and more people are diagnosed as schizophrenic in order right. to basically b- protect the the star rating <laughs> right right it's, so that they can they can and, and even, they, then they can chemically sedate them yeah if you, bu- you but also bump like up even the star beyond, rating if you bump down the number of people well you bump up the star rating if you bump up the number of people who are being prescribed these because they're listed as having schizophrenia right but i mean even beyond the star rating right this is actually like a much more um uh institutionalized practice and oh, pre- yeah, I, it predates yeah. the start ra- the star rating system and and what where it comes from is you know in the early 90s like there was this strategy to get around legislation that had passed in the late 80s and one of those has been um, to, to, you know, to apply these diagnostic codes and to justify it on paper. Right. And as the star rating system was sort of developed, like the idea was to sort of tie these metrics and like tie this reporting of like of like the quality of nursing home data to what was actually going on inside, which like, you know, as we're saying, can be gamed. But the thing about the star ratings is that they're also pretty meaningless. Um, One of the things that I think was really interesting was like during the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when there was first starting to be reporting about, you know, there's really a problem in nursing homes. We have like 70% of deaths in nursing homes early on. Um, I remember there was an article about uh, deaths in California, long-term care and nursing home facilities that were saying, you know, regardless of star rating, um, People were dying in nursing homes at extremely high rates based on like it could have a five star rating. But if the population was like majority people of color, then you had COVID rampantly spreading in the congregate facility. And if it was like a congregate facility in a white or wealthier neighborhood, then the likelihood of COVID spreading in the facility was lower. So it was one of those one of those early pictures of, um, you know, how COVID was disproportionately impacting people who weren't white um, actually comes from this sort of like evidence that the star ratings themselves don't actually really correspond to the care. But it has a huge factor in the decision making process to send a family member to these facilities. So it's almost this like ruse of um, quieting the conscience of the people who are not in the facility, the people who are in the family and the community or the kin of the person actually in the nursing home by saying, you know, oh, I sent them to like a five star facility, not a three star right. facility. And it's right. this way of sort of like, um, you know, uh, obscuring the fact that whether it's a five star facility or a two star facility or a one star facility, you know, there is a problem with congregate care and with nursing homes writ large. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like the history of the, the star rating system is like the history of all sort of like liberal um, attempts at like public policy, uh, certainly like in the neoliberal like era. It's like a crisis happens, right? You know, you have these scandals that emerge in the 1980s uh, <laughs> and earlier with nursing homes. Um, there's a wave of public outcry. And then the policy project becomes what is the least amount we could do uh what is the smallest number of changes we could make to this utterly 
like morally bankrupt system uh, that will like quite exactly what you're saying, be like quiet, like public rage. And like the star system is is it's ridiculous because, number one, yeah, I guess you could say that like on the margins, it, you know, it might cause you to send your uh, a family member to a different facility. There's also a lot of evidence that tons of people can't even choose based like even if the star rating system by the way it's like the 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 concept i suppose like quality metrics is like well i guess people use star rating systems to choose restaurants and like movies it's like well also no they don't <laughs> uh but uh the but like the idea is like oh we're going to use that to like inform consumer choice which again mm-hmm. is ridiculous but a lot of people can't even choose based on that because all of the nursing homes in their local context where it would be easy to go see their family member are rated like a one or two. So it's just, you know, like in Milwaukee, like there's like it is very hard to find a facility that that has like, I think, above three stars. Um, so like this whole idea that like you can like regulate things through like giving like consumers information is insane. But I think the other thing that you see is like the idea that you can use these like very minor like tools of the regulatory state to incentivize somehow like incentivize these bankrupt instant like morally bankrupt institutions to like behave better they they will whatever rule you come up with they will just find a way of getting around it uh because they have they have to protect their margins at all costs and i I think the thing too that's important is sort of well, let's let's talk for a second about the reason why nursing homes say that they prescribe these psychotropic medications to patients, right? Like, right. so what nursing homes say is that people with dementia become agitated. Sometimes they can become violent. Sometimes they can become aggressive. Um, people are disoriented. They don't know where they are. They're not around familiar people, perhaps. You know, they're not in their their home that they remember. So that it is a way to protect people from injuring themselves or injuring staff members. And it's a way to calm them, pacify them, and reduce their anxiety and agitation, right? Well, in actuality, right, the reason why these medications are prescribed and the the way that these medications were sold as a solution both to lawmakers initially and to, you know, administrators of state asylums then and now nursing home administrators now yeah. is this technique of using psychotropic medications to sedate congregant residents, be they, um, you know, children in institutions or foster care or IDD children in school or elders or disabled people or people in prison or jail, pretty much anyone in this congregate facility, like in the congregant model where you rely on keeping the margins, um, keeping the ratio of like staff to residents or staff to like patient or prisoner, like really low in order to like eke out or squeeze out a profit in the end, um, you know, that, that this is a tool to reduce staff overhead. Because if, if the people that are being supervised in the facility are sedated, then you need fewer staff to manage them. And so this is a way of, of running, you know, lean and uh, profitable nursing facilities. The problem is, um, you know, there's also a really high turnover rate because what this means is for the people who remain, you know, they get these these staff ratios down razor thin, but the patient levels in nursing homes are still the same. The workload is unbelievably draconian. It is 
so underpaid, right? And so you have these medications really as part of this dynamic, which is really just sort of this extractive cycle of capitalism moving through um, institutions like nursing homes, right? And and what it does is it makes it easier for these institutions to run um, with as few staff as possible, which obviously, as COVID has become, you know, ubiquitous in the United States, staffing in long term care and nursing home facilities has become like at dire crisis levels. So the practice of using psychotropic medication to sedate people has exploded and only increased since the sort of staffing shortages of the pandemic have gotten worse. And, and- and I, I like to think about it this way, like there's so many different facets to this problem that it's it. it and I think the thing that like uh, your standard sort of like reformist type person would do is they're like, oh, let me just like hit this thing and, you know, see if that makes the problem go away. But like w- like one thing to consider is like the profit motive it really does work like an acid bath on any sort of like desire to like follow the rules to like the letter of the law. So like even if you were to just like change the rule that says, okay, well now you have to report like all antipsychotics, uh, regardless of what the diagnosis is. And that would like change a lot of the star ratings. You would still have this other problem that's going on. And I think this illustrates the thing quite, how, how it works quite nicely, which is that since that whole star rating thing went into effect, drug companies have been developing these, essentially the, these prescriptions that like do the same thing as these antipsychotics, but they're not regulated by the FDA in the same way. Right. And so they're like, and, and the, the other feature of these things is they can be crushed up in like, they're like, they come in like powder form. So you can like slip them into somebody's food without them noticing. Well, and like, so like that illustrates is like, you know, dealing with this, like just like the level of like these, these like individual, like policy things is like, no, the, the problem is much deeper than that. And you can see that because every time you like have a little change, then uh, essentially the profit motive gives drug companies and nursing homes like a, a, a real impulse to like snap back. Well, and I think that's a good reason why it's, you know, as you said, you can't just kind of change one variable with this stuff and, and make it all work out. The example that you used saying, OK, well, what if now you had to report all uh, use of this? Like that gets into a position where basically you're saying that like these already carceral institutions are going to be even more in a position of, I guess, like what policing diagnoses, which does not sound like a good um, thing, like thing to, to me exactly. I think what this what this really gets to, because I, I do want to talk about, for example, this, uh, like some of these med- other new, newer medications that you're talking about, feel like uh, this, what is it, sprinkle? Um, it's the Dep- Dep- Depakote sprinkle. Yeah. yeah, we'll visit that a little bit later. Yeah, we'll, t- we'll talk about that later. That's cool. Um, Depakote sprinkle, which is like a, a, a similar, uh, you know, a, a new, newer thing used for chemical sedation. But I think that the broader point is this is why it's so important, I think, to talk about nursing homes as not only, again, part of that continuum that I mentioned of uh, like within the prison industrial complex of like jails and prisons, but also as sort of this very direct successor to the old asylum system. Because if you look at the stuff that happened in the asylum system, basically from the end of the 18th uh, throughout the 19th and 20th century, Mm -hmm. like exactly what is happening now shows how 
whenever you have these institutions that are set up as these places of uh, like medicalized last resort or, mm-hmm. or whatever, um, where you, you have just this huge funneling of critically vulnerable groups, many of which are, so, you know, some of which are in debt basically just to fucking be there mm-hmm. basically you you end up basically with all of these like all of these all these tropes that you guys are talking about just like play out throughout um throughout the like the history of that entire system like one example right. before like before chemical incarceration uh became a thing for example before it was a common practice to chemically sedate people as early as for instance like the 18th well i mean there's a lot of it there are a ton of examples but i'll mention in the end of the 19th century and like the 1890s um benjamin rush who was a signatory of the u.s declaration of independence of Mm -hmm. all things um created something called the tranquilizer chair which was essentially served almost the same idea but basically through torture you essentially had people who were within the asylum strapped to a chair for long periods of time oh and they're making them again for prisons now by the way you know the the sort of use of psychiatric medications to accomplish this um sort of let's call it like warehouse model crowd control right um because that's very much how it is it's like about trying like congregate and warehoused um facilities the ideas you know you just kind of try and standardize everything and by standardizing it you can run it as efficiently um financially efficiently as possible um what that means is that you're imposing artificial scarcity on the model that it's run right and that's always how these places have been designed and before um, psychiatric medication was used to sedate people. There were all sorts of physical means of restraint. And there were several um, major, major exposés in the first half of you know the 20th century where the public got incredibly upset and outraged with the state of, you know, the way that people were being restrained in straight jackets or or cuffed for three to five days at a time and left in a basement. And this, you know, this has sort of happened, these exposés and these like public attention um, pieces like this New York Times piece about the the use of psychiatric medication that's exploded in nursing homes like this is actually something that has happened often right the idea that there are these you know sort of investigative reporters who draw light on this the public is outraged lawmakers rise to act right this is kind of like the script and this has happened over and over and over again and throughout deinstitutionalization happened on sometimes a monthly basis especially during the 70s so you know as asylums closed and nursing homes opened and became the dominant form of care the same methods and approaches to you know keeping staff ratios low and sedating and restraining people, you know, moved from the st- the big state asylum to the small community nursing home or the group home or the IDD facility or wherever. And it's like these things, they just sort of, whenever there's an expose, there's like a crackdown and then they scatter, right? right. It doesn't go yeah. away. It just yeah, exactly. like is reproduced elsewhere. Well, right. And it, it seems like the pattern, it seems like the pattern is over time, like the, the basic impulse to warehouse people and to and to essentially treat people as as just like as as lives that don't have any value or meaning like that doesn't go away what what changes it seems is like um 
kind of like public mores. You get like the rise, and it's like like a what, like a middle class that's like gone to college and like has certain like values. You get like investigative reporters. You get like the rise of like things like the right to know and like FOIA and all of these things, and like it just makes perfect ground for exposés, right? And then you get all of the, the sort of the emergence of oh, we can this idea that like oh, we can like do these like little tweaks. And like have like a well-regulated society. What it gives you over time is like a set of technologies that, in fact, allow you to do this stuff with like even less scandal and like even less like this. This article is shocking. It is fucking repulsive. I don't see anyone talking about it even and and even like going back to like the, the nursing home scandal. If you think back to like. God, like Andrew Cuomo and like the the fact that he's like just like not reporting these deaths and just like what's happened over the last year. You would think you would think that like maybe making it easier for people to like be cared for where they live outside of congregate settings would be, I don't know, if not like issue priority number one in terms of like risk to life. Uh, then then like certainly like in the top five, but no, it's like this thing that can just be really quickly dismissed and just like edited out of legislation and like in a very agreeable way. It's not like you have three Democrats like, uh, you know, saying like, oh, we're not going to do this. We're going to like buck the party. This is like the party not even fighting for this priority to begin with. Right. Well, I think I think this is part of the problem with the sort of the narrative of the the kind of uh, the, the idea that there's been a sort of evolving morality of (laughs) congregate care or something like that. I think the reason to bring up the similarity actually between, you know, the, like the old asylum system and the current system of kind of more dispersed nursing homes now is to say that, for example, you're like, you're, you're right, Phil, this stuff can get written up and it's like not, it's not even a gigantic splash. My, you know, my point is that, for example, like, first of all, it's not like this stuff wasn't uh, known. I mean, even in B mentions, you know, exposés in the 20th century. Um, if you read, for example, um, there's this like fantastic historian of the asylum system, Andrew Skull. Mm-hmm. I bring him up specifically just because, you know, he talks about stuff that we would understand as like, you know, uh, public outrage and exposés uh, over the asylum system specifically happening, happening as early as I think like 1812 uh, or something like I that. I think so actually it's like earlier. Very, I, yeah. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not like it's a new thing. Right. R- right. And so, you know, this like, you know, that has been kind of a part of it. And as B is saying, like, yes, there's this constant, there's this idea that constantly, like, okay, yes, new tools come through or whatever, or as we sort of change and adapt to this system that the the you know way that the ways that we um organize congregate care despite the fact that they you know they're, they're basically like set up as prison hospitals essentially that you know these things have like evolved or their faces have changed or they're or, or they're more more friendly or humane or something and some and some of those tools even for example like i, I think the thing that makes it really difficult to generate even you know public outcry over something like um this this like Times article or, or the, the continuing practice of chemical incarceration, chemical sedation for people in nursing homes is that like even when 
<laughs> when these drugs were first introduced, they were introduced as the more humanitarian option, mm -hmm. right? Because no longer are you strapping people to a chair. Uh, this is part of what we'd be talking about with like, you know, un undoing the restraints on people or whatever. No longer are you strapping to people to a chair. No longer are you doing something we didn't even talk about with like, you know, uh, surgical psychiatric practices, stuff like lobotomies. Yes. Um, instead, you're doing, I mean, the it's, it's no, it's... <laughs> No um, accident that Thorazine, the first major drug used for chemical sedation in asylum in the asylum system, basically was referred to widely as succeeding in creating a, a chemical lobotomy. Right. <laughs> right. Um, the idea being that basically and you see this in, um, for instance, like here's a here's a statement about Thorazine from 1952 uh, from a psychiatrist. It was understood that basically the it, you know it wasn't necessarily because there wasn't when these things were first introduced this is part of the thing and part of the problem there's like this uh, there's this idea this understanding that like oh there's some you see hear the commonly repeated line like oh there's like a chemical imbalance in the brain or something mm -hmm. uh with some of these people and for the most part specifically with like people who are in whether it's the asylum system or the or, or nursing homes if they're being prescribed one of these specifically for the purposes of sedation it's not that they you know it's more about a it's more about a behavior modulation mm -hmm. essentially right so here's like the in 1952 uh one psychiatrist says of thorazine for example that when given to uh basically like talking about the wonders of the drug says when given to their patient quote he rarely takes the initiative of asking a question unquote and further quote does not express his preoccupations desires or preference um Unquote. which is yeah but in saying this specifically to say you know this like here here we go we've taken this person who was otherwise frustrated at being frustrated, frustrated at being warehoused and uh you know we've we've made them docile basically right and and, and this was you know this was the new cutting edge um sort of more modern and more acceptable way to do this but there was no real indictment of the the wholesale practice of warehousing itself. It's like every sort of humane innovation, you know, has been from the perspective of like pharma been about, you know, increasing market share within congregate and warehousing facilities. But but, you know, it's like there's no there's no real um, commitment beyond like promises that are made and broken over and over and over again by lawmakers um, to actually liberate people and free them from these these institutions. Right. Like regardless of like laws passed or Supreme Court decisions or changes to the DSM. Right. Like none of these things have actually resulted in the liberation that was promised. And, it, right. you know, I think, you know, just to. Like, if if you guys want, I have this, like, 1949 speech from the governor of Minnesota where he um, called the press to, a per, like, a bonfire, a Halloween bonfire where he burned the straitjackets. And I think it's really interesting how he frames the decision to rid um, the Minnesota state asylum system of physical restraints. And remember, at this time, this is, like, as uh, the use of psychotropics is starting to become really popular. So he says... Um, this is uh, Minnesota Governor Luther Youngdale. It is just a little more than 250 years ago since mentally ill and other citizens were burned at the stake at Salem as witches. 
A long period of time has elapsed since then. We discarded the stake, but retained in our attitudes towards the mentally ill, the voodooism, demonology, fears, and superstitions associated with witchcraft. Tonight, Halloween Eve, we employ the state and fire for another purpose, to destroy the straitjackets, shackles, and manacles, which were our heritage from the Salem days." As little as 18 months ago, all but one of our mental hospitals used mechanical restraints. Today, most <laughs> today most are restraint-free. The bonfire which I am lighting tonight consists of 359 straitjackets, 196 cuffs, 91 straps, and 25 canvas mittens. No patient in the Anoka State Hospital is in restraints. These restraints were removed from the patients not by administrative coercion, but by the enlightened attitudes of the Ah, superintendent, staff, hmm. employees, and volunteer workers of the Anoka State Hospital. They were (laughs) removed as the hospital's answer to witchcraft. By this action, we say more than that we have liberated the patients from barbarous devices and the approach which these devices symbolized. By this action, we say to the patients that we understand them, that they have no fears, that they need have no fears, that those around them are their friends. By this action, we say to the patients that we will not rest until every possible thing is done to help them get well and return them to their families. We have no easy job. The roots of demonology are deep. We have burned one evidence of this tonight. We must be on our guard that it does not creep up in other forms, that what the bonfire symbolizes tonight will carry on in public thinking until every last thing is done to make the state hospital truly a house of hope for those most misunderstood of all human beings. I was going to say, can you verbalize an asterisk? Did he verbalize a big (laughs) asterisk? Um. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, you you know, you see these sort of these solutions, right? You know, we've got this, um, this ethical duty. We're not being compelled by administrative coercion. This is, uh, you know, us rising to a higher calling to burn these straight jackets and uh, dose everyone with Thorazine instead. Well, right. And I, and I do think that that like that idea of like the, the higher calling or that like that there is this like forward march of science is like very like forward march of like science and medicine is very much the it's like the ad is the sort of ad copy and the I don't know. It's a persistent. I, I think it, it works as ad copy. It works as rhetoric because I think it is this, you know, whatever in our what uh, how, however far we progress into like post enlightenment you know kind of politics um i think there is this um thing that it taps into which is like people sort of believe this is why this is why like drug companies can like more you know at least try to sell the line that like uh if if you allow us if you don't if you don't allow us to like reap the most profits possible we won't have all of this great innovation it's like the same sort of thing that's like selling that line but the the thing about uh, relying on people's higher ideals is that like gee when higher ideals come into contact with like the like material realities of administering large numbers of people and in the case of nursing homes like administering large numbers of people and trying to like extract a like surplus value uh from from like doing it like what do you think is going to win out? Like higher ideals will never win out. Right. Well, also I think that most importantly, all of this gives context to the, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, the fact that 
when funding for, I don't know, allowing people to continue to have care in their homes, for example, as opposed to like having to go, having to go to congregate facilities, um, not to mention, obviously, that there's all, all sort of things that would need to be done on top of any sort of um, legislation like that to, I don't know, keep people able to have homes considering mm-hmm. how, um, how like fucked up the entire political economy is. But just the idea that you can kind of forestall or not worry about or that it's sort of like like reckless spending or something <laughs> the idea of uh allowing people to have care within home or community settings in order to think that that's you know a, def- a defensible position or something like that you have to basically just assume that like the nursing home system works right you have to just assume like nursing home system is fine it's like fine. that's where people that's where people go like we close the asylums you have to basically believe in all the rhetoric that is you know just obvious bullshit that is the kind of stuff that b was reading um just earlier from the minnesota governor right you have to believe mm-hmm. that like statements like that that were made were accurate and that we have pre- precipitated this like moral revolution and how we deal with um the elderly and the disabled and you know, all of these groups who end up for a whole number of reasons into places like nursing homes or, or similar congregate facilities, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's like a lot of times, you know, if you bring this up, people go, well, like, it, it, isn't it illegal to do this, right? Like, isn't it illegal for nursing homes to prescribe um, drugs just on the basis of reducing staff numbers? And yes, absolutely. It's explicitly illegal and uh, was made illegal just as many of um, these restraint practices have been made, quote unquote, illegal in the past in 1987 by President Ronald Reagan. So like he passed this law in 87 that said, you know, there is no... um, Basically, like that these facilities cannot operate and cannot be licensed if and or paid by Medicare if they um, prescribe drugs based on their administrative needs, not the patient's needs. Right. And so that was sort of celebrated as, yes, we've got an end to the, you know, the practice practice. Right. And. The fact of the matter is that actually what happened when this law passed is that the pitch of how these drugs were sold and the record keeping changed, right? And drug companies started, you know, producing studies to justify the the use of them within the same settings, right? So it was sort of this uh, situation of like, okay, well, you say it's illegal to do it for these purposes. Like, here is a new way to do the same thing for a new reason, right? And so, you know, the it, the the law itself basically is a loophole, right? Because these drugs now technically are prescribed to the patient under a framework of medical necessity. Like they are being prescribed. These people are being diagnosed with schizophrenia first, right? Like this is, you know, there is a more of a socially determined necessity for the use of this practice, right? Then there is a socially recognized necessity to like fund any kind of services which would prevent this, right? And I think that's so evident in the discussion around, you know, this infrastructure spending deal where people are just talking about top line dollar amounts and not, you know, 
what is the money that we need to spend in order to accomplish this like policy goal that we're promising of like expanding and um, expanding the workforce and expanding access to like home and community based services rather than nursing homes in an attempt to reverse, you know, a centuries long preference for nursing and congregate style warehouse care, right, which was, you know, promised and legally dictated to be, you know, what the priority of the governance strategy of the United States was going to be from, you know, 1999 forward. Right. So like, Yo, none no, of and, this. And, yeah, and this is like the other thing is like, this is not a like, this is why this is like the scale of this is like appalling. And, and I think that illustrative of, of how all of these technologies work to, I, I don't know, I think arrest public attention or awareness uh, of anything Um that this like isn't somehow like even more scandalous a- as it is, but like there, this is not like an isolated thing where there's like oh there's some like really bad like unscrupulous nursing homes. <laughs> this is the whole. I thing. would I would wager, given the at least the estimates that we're seeing from like CMS, the there is a nursing home in every single congressional district. There's at least one nursing home, if not more, that do this. Not like to if you pay like to do this routinely and like that, that if you enter that nursing home, uh, that there is a significant propensity for this to happen to you, uh, regardless of like, but basically so that you can be managed. Um, and, and like, that's the thing that I, I think that people aren't necessarily like uh, picking up on that, that, yeah, we, we have all these like ways of, of comforting ourselves, but like. You're putting like when you go into one of these institutions, like of like all of these risk factors like increase, and like the only way of somehow pretending that's not uh, a you know a, a crisis worthy of like major like reconstructive um, like policymaking is to just pretend that um, I I think that like that we've essentially got it under control that there are just a few bad apples. <laughs> Or that, um, uh, I mean, or that, uh, like the, the the sort of line that we've heard, like during the pandemic, like these these like, you know, whatever deaths pulled from the future, that like ultimately these lives are not that like uh, what what's happening was going to happen anyway. Like they're you know, uh, suffering is somehow unavoidable. That sort of fatalism. Well, but I mean, this is the thing: like deinstitutionalization of uh, of the asylum system of nursing homes never really happened. Yeah, right. right. I mean, it happened in a certain form, the institutions shifted, but in a lot of ways, they just sort of like, you know, spiraled out into all of these like satellite institutions, things like nursing homes for, mm-hmm. uh, as, um, with, you know, all of these practices, practices like carried on throughout. I think the way that we can kind of culturally absol- absolve ourselves from that is that things don't like literally aesthetically look like uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something right. right now, right? That we know that a bunch of those buildings that were the old asylum system are, uh, are like literally abandoned or whatever. And now they become like fucking shooting locations for horror movies or something like that. Right. But like <laughs> these, uh, but you know, these, these practices carry on. And that's why I think that, um, y- you know, th- this is why, again, as you know, as, as we talk about, um, from time to time, you need a much more, um, emancipatory politics around this and you need a much more emancipatory agenda overall. So like the, I mean, the total reformation of the political economy of health, um, 
but until then or at least you know for for now really i mean i think if, if anything the stuff that you're uh talking about phil with like uh, I'm, i would wager that this happens in you know nursing homes and in, in every king like in every last uh congressional district it happens all over the country i would say like if anything that's an understatement because this is exactly like this structurally is basically what these institutions do right right this is like this is just part of their sort of administrative logic this is part of how the management and bureaucratic apparatuses that like they are descended from this is like the part of their central function right Mm -hmm. is essentially to you know take these uh sort of difficult to manage quote-unquote undesirables or whatever and have and have a like congregate place in which to manage them right i think actually a really good example of that might be maybe we can talk about this deprecate sprinkle thing yeah, just to round everything out you. because i think because bu found this this uh one really specific um document from court records actually and i feel like it shows how how basically like these drugs to some degree are you know made to fill a market function and part of that market function it like exists explicitly because like this is what these institutions do right Right, exactly and like you know as we're saying this happens to institutionalized children to children in the foster care system to autistic children to basically any child with an intellectual or developmental disability i mean it's similar to if you've listened to the britney spears episode that we talked about Um, conservative officially um under the uk like nhs treatment protocols like children with intellectual disabilities can be prescribed these medications with no um real indication or follow-up necessary which is not um super safe you know this is used um on in school settings on prisoners on psychiatric patients on animals it's widespread right and i and we're not trying to say here that like wholesale like psychotropic drugs are bullshit but um you know, it's it's an indictment of our systems of care and of the decisions that we have made um, in order to prioritize both policy preferences and protect the way these like, you know, uh, industries operate. And I'm talking not just about, you know, nursing homes, but pharma. Right. Because I think, you know, what what we're about to read comes from a um, a lawsuit, basically, where uh, Abbott, uh, who we just talked about recently for throwing away all those Binax Now tests in the early summer, where Abbott um, got in trouble for the way that it was marketing a new uh, medication called Depakote starting in the early 90s. And they made a formulation of Depakote even um, called Depakote Sprinkle, which comes in a powder form so you can discreetly give it to someone without them knowing by putting it on top of their food. And um, cute, cheery name. Innovation. This document that we're about to read through um, is part of the court disclosures. Maybe we could like uh, I'll post it in the server. But if you want to read the whole thing, but it's an internal marketing document from Abbott sort of running through their strategy and their view of how Depakote exists relative to the market in general and how this practice is actually used. And I think it gives you a much better picture of how common this is than the entire New York Times expose article. Just right. Saying. Yeah. Okay. So this document uh, starts with, it's basically, it's headlined Depakote, uh, New Psychiatry Markets, 1998 Strategic Marketing Plan. And it is, as B mentioned, um, it's from the company Abbott Laboratories, also makers of the popular COVID test, Binax Now, who <laughs> we've talked about recently. Now being sold at cost. Thanks, um, President Biden. Yeah. So think, uh, you know, 
every time you uh, take a Binax now COVID test, think about Depakote Sprinkle. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it might be a good idea to, you know, again, I'm not saying that this is like, how to put it. As B mentioned, kind of not saying that all of this stuff is inherently like hokum or something, but I am saying that, I don't know, this, what we're about to read from shows that you should probably take uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer out of the hands of, I don't know, private industry, private market, everything, all this shit should be socialized yeah, to start. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm not going to go through too much of this, but I will, I want to highlight a couple of things, most notably what they say, essentially, um, how they, how they position it in terms of being able to fulfill this sort of like administrative function. Cause we, we had talked at the very beginning about how, you have all these antipsychotic uh, medications that are regulated in a very specific way, right? Where you have to have uh, such and such amount of r- reporting, right? And so they say one of their um, main points in this strategic marketing plan document, this internal document from Abbott Laboratories, is headlined capitalize on obra restrictions to position depakote as the drug of choice mm-hmm. depakote has a competitive event advantage over neuroleptics the most commonly prescribed drug for agitation or aggression in the elderly in order for a patient to receive a neuroleptic in a nursing home uh, one use of neuroleptic drugs must be documented as appropriate for the diagnosis two dose reduction and elimination of neuroleptic drugs must be attempted every six months Three, any drug must be used for the appropriate indication, dose, and duration. And four, use must be adjusted based upon adverse events or drug interactions. Now, helpfully, right underneath, there is a bullet point that says Depakote can be prescribed without the above inconvenient and costly restrictions and guidelines that are an additional cost to the institution and provider. So what they very little literally say in this marketing document is Depakote could very easily capture a much larger market as a sedative of choice, essentially, within the nursing home system because nursing homes would not have to, as it mentions, uh, be documented as appropriate for the diagnosis, attempt to reduce the dose or eliminate the use of them over the course of six months, uh, or be given for the appropriate indication or even dosage, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, so this is fun. And that, that OBRA restriction, that's they're talking about specifically um, the 1987 laws, which restricted the ways that, you know, antipsychotics could be used. But Depakote uh, was FDA approved as an anti-seizure medication that has these side effects that are similar to antipsychotics, but are, you know, regulated differently. And because of the way that the law was passed initially being so short-sighted and so limited, it really imposed little to no restriction on this practice at all. But it definitely quelled the public outrage. I'll, I'll give it that, you know, Reagan did a good job with quelling public outrage at this practice and pushing it under the rug for another 10 years yeah the other really important thing that it gives context just to to understand how um like the the scale of what happens here um is that within this marketing document itself you see that they're very specifically it's you know we're, we're not just saying like oh there's a you know this happens all the time there's a big market for it like let abbott laboratories tell you basically because how they're identifying <laughs> right because the, you know they have a they have the 
rights to this drug and they're identifying well Depakote could be used more right that's what this but that's what that's what statements like well you know nursing homes it could be really convenient for them to prescribe this because they wouldn't have all these you know quote-unquote burdensome reporting requirements over it right and so like uh here's how they report the scale and remember this is 1998 um and the I mean, this this sector has increased in size um, since then, but they state by the year 2000, 35 percent of the population, I think they mean of just the U.S., will be 65 plus years of age and over five million people will be 85 plus years of age. There are currently 15,600 nursing homes in the United States with over one point seven seven million beds and one point six million patients. The nursing home market is currently a $1.8 billion drug market with an average of $1,200 a bed spent on pharmaceuticals a year. Eight nursing home pharmacy providers control more than 60% of all nursing home beds. The typical nursing home patient is 75 to 80 years of age, takes seven to eight medications, and will spend 180 days in the nursing home. 58% of all nursing home beds are currently controlled by chains. So then they, uh, they go on to explain dementia basically um, what dementia is and its its prevalence in, in older people and then state specifically agitation associated with dementia is a common clinical problem <laughs> of the 4.1 million patients with dementia in the united states 2.9 million 70 percent will have some form of behavioral disturbance the prevalence has been reported in the literature to range from 43 to 93 percent of those with dementia <laughs> only two-thirds of those patients will actually receive medication for the aggression slash agitation no medication is approved by the US FDA uh, for the treatment of dementia-related behavior disturbance. Nonetheless, the treatment of <laughs> dementia-related behavioral disturbance usually includes psychotropic medications. So what they're saying is quite literally, so the incidence of people who are diagnosed as having dementia is and who then uh, get you know agitated or, or whatever in the nursing home is high anywhere between half and all of them right and uh, gee i don't know why between half and all ooh, like, then they, they then get goes, agitated gee what is, like compare that to the rest of the, like population in the nursing home yeah who doesn't get agitated but, or me know, i get agitated i, I was gonna say but that's why i've been putting definite sprinkle on your wheaties oh, in the Jesus. morning no but um the okay and then so but again and then just just to recap uh the thing I just read literally they say you know there isn't an FDA approved treatment for dementia associated agitation but we know that a lot of nursing homes prescribe people antipsychotics anyway right that's what it that, I mean that's what they say neuroleptic we like, know of an antipsychotic <laughs> same as the French antipsychotics yeah, <laughs> oh, the French antipsychotics exactly uh, there is a California for the, for neuroleptic for restraining properties <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, so then they, they break down, uh, what's, what's commonly things that are commonly used, uh, like antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then they helpfully say, again, remember this is 1998 Depakote use in this market has been growing consistently over the last three <laughs> years to its current market share of 2.9%, uh, of the drugs prescribed basically for, uh, like within within nursing homes for quote unquote agitation, um, the total market opportunity <laughs> in Depakote dollars <laughs> is two hundred and four million. <laughs> Open label studies and case reports have concluded that Depakote is safe and effective for the aggressive slash agitated behavior associated with dementia. And, sorry, and means. doesn't their market doesn't their market get better as nursing homes like quality of care 
generally well, speaking, gets worse. Like, aren't they, they? Are they essentially predating <laughs> on on that? Like the continued like entropy of the sector. Are they not? What this document is actually proposing is the creation of a long term care sales task force within Abbott Laboratories to yeah. specifically ah, okay. chase the thirty nine percent of the market that antipsychotics have compared to at the time of this report um, the three percent of the market that Depakote has. And Abbott, um, you know, this case happened because the long-term care uh, sales team, like the strike team that Abbott formed, was incredibly effective and massively increased their market share. Right. I mean, actually, yeah, I guess point point being in a way, if you've gotten this far and uh, yeah, if, you, if you're following along at home and um, you haven't gotten here yet, basically, this is some Sackler shit. But keep in mind that Sackler shit is what the whole industry is, you know, incentivizing you to do. Mm-hmm. Right? right. That's what the political economy generates. So, mm-hmm. y- you know, if you know about that stuff and are aware or agitated about it, um, you know, maybe demanding that maybe we should just seize all pharmaceutical companies. I don't know. Anyway, just a thought. So the fi- I guess maybe one of the final things that I'll read from this uh, under the heading key strategic issues. Mm. The market is dominated by the use of neuroleptics slash antipsychotics. <laughs> the major issue facing Depakote in this market is that it is dominated by antipsychotics, which currently have a 45% share of the market, approaching 20% for Risperdal. Physicians and pharmacists have used these drugs since the mid-1950s when they were first introduced, which is just like we were saying with Thorazine. The key decision makers are comfortable with these medications. The traditional antipsychotics are now all generically available and thus very inexpensive. Many patients with dementia are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale and by virtue of their condition lack insight, okay, Mm. direction and resources to access newer drugs. Cool, great. So yeah, by, by virtue of their condition lack insight. Awesome. Generically available drugs represent an affordable option. Basically, yeah whatever they're 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 doing cap they're doing what capitalists do right they're doing regular market stuff they're identifying their market um they're identifying what you know what's going on here the difference here versus you know the common uh examples that you'll find here and there is that the market basically is just surplus value produced by you know having a bunch of uh, elderly and disabled people who like this, who society fucking refuses to care for. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, after this report, Abbott launched its long term care sales force. And, you know, the market was the revolutionized. Rest was right. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, and it's used, and it's not like this drug is not like useful, right? Like it is a useful drug when used in the right instances. Should it come in a powder form called Depakote Sprinkle that you can, you know, taste? slip into anyone's food? Probably not. You know, should this company be framing stuff in Depakote dollars? Definitely not. But like the fact of the matter is, is that like every time one of these news, new exposés hits the news, like people treat this like it's the the beginning or the first realization of a brand new, horrifically morally bankrupt or, you know, abject failure of society instead of recognizing what it actually is, which is this is and has been the dominant preference for treating people who we don't treat like people. Right. right. And it has been used over and over. It has been reinforced. It has been legislated. It has been marketed. People have spent their entire careers 
selling this drug to be used this way. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you have to wonder, uh, what could we be doing with all this time and energy if it wasn't devoted to reproducing capital and we could devote these, these resources to actually delivering care because so little of the agenda with, you know, how we spend on care is even intended with, you know, the needs of the person receiving the care in mind. Right. Cause this is the thing. If it's not Depakote, it's going to be something else. If it's not one nursing home chain, it's going to be another one, or it will be, you know, if it's not nursing homes, if it's a similar kind of thing that's set up into, you know, into private hands or, or whatever, um, or even just, or public hands, but run carcerally, right. Then it's going to, like, these will continue to be carceral institutions. It's like, you know, you tell like, great, good job. Basically, you know, huge, huge fucking golf claps, New York times. Like you've discovered that water is wet. Like, (laughs) like, you know, that, but and I don't say that in a fatalist way. I, I say that in a way that's like we obviously we really we've, actually we've had need scandals to before. Do something. Yeah. There are scandals with some level of periodicity, like that, and that's not just like nursing homes. That's like, uh, that is what this like system of accumulation like produces. They 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 are things that like are completely out of joint with what are like actual sort of like I think like deeply held like human like values are, and then we see them and they're shocking. But then, but you can't like, you can't treat them with something that is just sort of a a salve to those values because then you'll just see the same thing emerge again. Right. Um, Actually, I think, I think we're getting um, to the end here, but I think possibly to uh, close my final thought at least is um, to relate this to, I mentioned Andrew Skull's scholarship uh, before, and I want to read one line from a, a piece of his that is where he's talking about changes to the asylum model in the late 19th century in the UK, um, where you had like a, the, the beginning of a shift to allowing sort of um, more private options uh, to exist. And stop me if this sounds familiar. <laughs> State construction and operation of institutions for the deviant and the dependent was very costly. Hence the importance as a transitional arrangement of the state contracting with private entrepreneurs to provide jails, madhouses, and the like. He's very critical of this. He's despite the language. Just just FYI. No, no one hate on Andrew Skull. Under this method, the state allows the quote, Uh, quote-unquote deviant farmer to extort his fees however he can and turns a blind eye to his methods in return the latter relieves the state of the capital expenditure and often even many of the operating costs required by a system of segregative control anyway deviant farmer Yep. And by the way, uh, by 2001, Depakote Sprinkle had gone from 3% of the market to 20% of the market. So there you go. That's some efficacy for you. Yeah. Marketing works. Making a difference in this instance. (laughs) I feel like this is a good place to leave it um, for today. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, We just added the CBO hat to the store, so feel free to use code if you want a discount if you want to help us out a little bit more you can share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore and as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week cool bye-bye bye